The Dad Presents, Episode 43, Peter Bogosian. It all starts right now. This has been an unfucking believable commitment. Okay, dad heads, today we got another treat for you, Peter Boghossian. All right, he's a philosopher and a professor at Portland State. Uh, he's got a new book coming out, and it's called How to Have Impossible Conversations. I got an advanced copy. It's a really interesting book, very helpful. Um, read almost the whole thing in two days. Oh, cool. Um, Peter, thanks for coming on. How you doing? Great. I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm dying to know and be ruthlessly honest with me. What would you think of the book? I, I liked it. I mean, I, I, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm a big reader. Or I should say I was a big reader until I got Netflix. I was the kind of guy who would go through about two, three books in a week. And I probably haven't read a book now in about two years, honestly, if I'm being wow. honest. Holy moly. But I, I made it through your book in the weekend. And I, I think it has me back on the track of, of reading. Reading is good for you. But your book specifically... Um, I think it discusses a lot of a lot of things that are problems in our current political climate and in society. Yeah. People don't know how to talk to each other anymore, and it becomes yes. more apparent every single day. Yeah, and not only do they not know how to talk to each other, but they're not learning. They're learning almost the exact opposite behaviors in the university, how to become fragile, how to think, look at people as your mortal enemies, your existential enemies, and... I did a done talks at Portland State where literally other faculty members stood up in the audience and started yelling at me, interrupting the talk. And faculty exactly, members do that. Yeah, tenured professors at Portland State University would get up, and there was no uh, there was no disciplinary action. There was no recourse to that, and so that's one of the things that's being modeled for our kids right now. And that's that's the thing that we need to address because they're not getting those simple. They're not having conversations with people who have disagreements, substantive political and moral disagreements. No, no. And, um, yeah, it's become shouting and, and this culture of, uh, dunking on people, like instead of, uh, having a constructive dialogue, there's the, the, the expression dunking on people when you just like humiliate them and you address that in your book. And, and one thing I liked about your book, um, I'm a writer. I've had a, a couple books out now, the way you structured your book, you, you, you started with some topics that are, little easier to wrap your mind around some, some basic conversational tools that everybody could put in practice. And then you work your way through complexity levels. So well, the structure you, you, of it makes it really it. easy to, to yeah. follow along and pick up on things. Yeah. Thanks. I really appreciate you reading it. So the, the book is it's divided into fundamentals, beginners, intermediate, advanced expert and masters and the expert and master level are how to, how to converse with, an ideologue, a zealot, a, a religious fundamentalist, someone with whom you would think the conversation would be absolutely impossible. And then the beginning techniques, and they all build up each other. They're most effective when used in, in conjunction with each other. So I'm happy to talk about specific techniques that listeners can use literally at the end of this podcast. Maybe we'll give them three or four things. And when they, when they operate in conjunction, they're so much more powerful than if they're standalones. Was there anything in particular that you liked because if not, yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah. I want to get into some particulars, but um, before we do that, I had a couple questions. Um, I first heard about you from the the grievance studies, okay, right? um, and I was hoping you could just 
our audience might not know, tell them a little bit what, you know, give them kind of the, the thousand yard view of what that was about. Cause it's, it's fascinating. Okay. So James Lindsay and I published a paper a few years ago. It was a hoax paper, a fake paper claiming that penises were responsible for climate change. I should probably <laughs> ask if I could say bad words on your show because there are a lot of bad words come down the, come down the pike. Um, and we did that to expose shoddy scholarship. And we said the, the, we claimed that penises were social constructs and then we revealed it right afterward. And people went insane. They were unbelievable. They were livid at us for this. And the, Criticism boiled down to the fact that this was just, you know, it could have been an anomaly. The journal wasn't a high-ranked journal. And so basically they gave us a roadmap for how to do it again. So we wrote, along with Helen Pluckrose, 20 intentionally broken, morally bankrupt would be the most, the nicest way to say it, papers uh, for gender studies, which is the, the nucleus of the problem, to expose shoddy scholarship in the university. And seven of those were published or on the road to be published until we got busted by the Wall Street Journal. We had, we had written 27 more were any going to come out any day now. So and then papers like that dog parks are petri dishes for canine rape culture. That's a line in the paper and that there's, you know, rapes constantly. And this is a demonstration of male hegemonic masculinity. Our fat bodybuilding, when we claim that there should be a category introduced in professional bodybuilding, in which fat people can come and display their fat. And, and these crazy ideas got published in respectable journals. Yeah, the top journals in the subfields. And one of them won an award, the dog park paper. That was our undoing. It was just too utterly over the top. But it was also in line, totally in line with the rest of the research that comes out of these fields as well. You know, and that men can remediate their transphobia by injecting objects into their anuses. And uh, yeah. Yeah, we didn't even have that idea, but the reviewers gave us that idea. And the more feminist the men, and I think it was the larger the objects, the the, the uh, greater the likelihood of remediating transphobia. So these folks, <laughs> these folks look at everything as a problem. How, how can anyone read something like that and and not laugh? I mean, regardless of your political affiliation, like that, that's clearly humorous. I, I, I think so. The problem is, well, let me tell you this. I thought the funniest one, I thought a few of them were really, really funny, but unfortunately they got busted before they got in. Uh, the one that wasn't funny was that we should put white men on chains in the floor as a form of experiential reparations. But the one I thought was one of the funniest was when we claimed that four research, researchers watch pornography for four hours a day for a year and took the implicit bias test every two hours about their impression of women in science. And then they developed a scale with, I can't, five being they had to stop, but compulsive urge to masturbate, I think was the scale. And we claim this and they didn't raise an eye. This just wasn't, this just didn't bat an eye. They just, you know, um, but when you live in these tight knit ecosystems, that's what happens. Yeah. It's because a lot of, a lot of those things that you're, you're preaching kind of, um, they go along with, with what they're teaching these kids on campus. So it's, exactly, it's exactly. confirmation bias of their own ridiculous beliefs. Like the, the one you just mentioned, uh, chaining white men down for reparations. I can, I can see some people getting on board with that idea. Yeah, it's a form of what's called the progressive stack, which, which was initially came to be in the Occupy Wall Street movement. And then you, you saw it in concerts, for example, when uh, if, you, if you had the more oppression variables you had, the more 
they wanted you to the, come to the front and the fewer oppression variables you had. So if you're white, cis, and male, you went to the back. So the university has called any kind of intellectual diversity at this point. Very, very few. And I'm not a conservative myself, but I, I view the lack of intellectual diversity to be a tremendous problem in the university system. Sure. And it might be its undoing. I don't yeah. know. No, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I've never considered myself conservative. I don't now. I, I Probably a decade ago, I would have called myself a liberal. But the, the, the way they push the identity politics, right. to me, it's everything that I, I stood against when I was coming up. Like, it's, right. wrong to, it's wrong to categorize people by the, their skin color or what kind of genitals they have or, or all these things. It's, it's wrong. That's not liberal. In fact, intersectionality demands that people do that now. And I think that the key for your listeners to understand is that they, they change the meanings of words and they smuggle terms in. And the meaning of the word that they've changed the most, or the most damaging is the word equity. So, you know, you said- Not you were, familiar. What's, what do you mean? Yeah. Well, so, well, well, so let's talk about that for, for a minute. So equity and equality are not the same things. Equality, Martin Luther King's dream, just treating people equally, don't look at the basis of treating someone in the content of their character, not some immutable characteristic like skin color or sexual orientation. Equity means, there's the word again, remediation, that you have to make up for some kind of past injustice. Mm. So if someone is black, for example, we need to make up for the fact that their ancestors were in slavery and give them special treatment. Or, yeah. or, or hate, or, or if you're a homosexual, or maybe you're gay, what have you, that that homosexuals have been traditionally disenfranchised, murdered, even, and therefore there's some kind of reparation um, that should come down the pike. That doesn't have to be a financial remuneration, but there has to be some kind of this happened to gays in the past, so therefore we need to to balance the scales. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's overreaching. It's, it's the pendulum swinging too far. Now I, I host this show with a couple black guys, right? They're not for these kind of things. They're not, they're not for reparations. So I sometimes when, when reparations, this is like a hot issue now with the democratic party. I wonder where it even comes from. Cause I don't think it's necessarily coming from the black community. Yeah. I would urge you to listen to Coleman Hughes, uh, uh, testimony before, I think it was the, the Senate. It came out, well, it came out, uh, I'm not sure if you, if you Google Coleman Hughes reparations testimony, it'll come up. I, I think part of the problem is that all of those things divide us instead of unite us. Sure. And so part of the, part of the problem with intersectionality is that it's, it's asking for us to look at someone's immutable characteristics and make judgments about them and then treat them differently on that basis. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You, you, you're, you're judging people. You're discriminating. That's what you're doing. You're discriminating when when you fall into identity politics. Yeah, um, on the, yeah, but one more on. thing, and the the pernicious part about this, the even worse, is that we've now institutionalized that in our universities, and so for sure, and we see clear lines of literature from Derrida to Foucault to Bell Hooks. All of this stuff is in the literature, and that was also part of the Grievance Studies project, is to show that the canons of literature upon which they base these utterly insane ideas are not only untethered to reality, but they need to be delegitimized. We need to yeah, start. They yeah, they're dangerous need, ideas. They're dangerous. They're terribly. They're, they're comp- totally divisive and hurtful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily seem that way to most folk right now. They seem like um, things that uh, kind hearted people would get on board with. They seem like 
uh, sweet, caring, compassionate okay. ideas, but take them to their logical conclusion. And you're looking at separating people by skin color. And that yeah. always ends bad. Always. So two things on that. One is they've co-opted the civil rights movement. They, they pretend to be riding on the coattails of the civil rights movement. They're simply not. The second is many of these folks, specifically in the academy, they have a way to relate to people that's very saccharine. It's like this artificially sweet way of, oh, you know, okay, you have your subjectivity and everybody. They just have a way of, of not only verbal behavior, but the way they communicate. And that you see that over and over again in pre-service teacher education programs, teacher training programs. And then, then those folks go in and they teach their kids. And so they, I think part of it is that people mistake, mistake tone, tone, niceness and kindness are not the same things. And so they, they seem like they're nice people, but they're certainly not kind people. Right. For sure. I agree. So I want, I want to move on to the book, hit a, hit a couple spots that, um, caught my eye. Um, in chapter two, you're, you're talking about seven fundamentals of good conversation, right? Um, one of them, I think it was fundamental number six, you talk about intentions. Now, this is something I think society could really benefit from, from realizing this. Like Whether you're Republican, uh, Democrat, whatever the fuck you are, most people, most people have good intentions. They get an opinion about a subject but their intention is usually good. Yet when we go into debate, like anything, especially like uh, contentious ones, like abortion, pro-choice people think that um, pro-lifers hate women right? and pro-lifers think that pro-choicers hate babies. And that's really not the case. They both think they're doing the right thing. That's right. So um, th- my question is, how can someone put aside their, their, their hatred or their anger with someone they disagree with to see that this person is coming from most likely a good place. How do we get to that point where we can start the conversation from there? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. In the Theotetus, Plato says, or Plato didn't write anything. Plato was the, uh, Socrates, Socrates was the character in Plato's dialogues and Plato, Plato wrote, Socrates did the talking. So Socrates said that people don't knowingly do bad things. The only reason people act the way they do is because they have inadequate information. And, and that is one of the things that's guided me in my conversations. It's one of the things I try to figure out if someone knows something I don't know, I want to know what it is. And so I then, I, I, I think asking questions to figure out why someone believes what they do. And sometimes if they're not a complete ideologue, it's just that they don't have a piece of information. Okay. Yeah. Um, and other, other points, like people like Ken Ham, there is no information that you could give him, you know, the, the ARC guy. There is no information, the, the Noah's ARC guy. There is no information that you could give him that he'd say, oh, you know, I, I thought that there was an ARC and dinosaurs had saddles and stuff, but then I... So I think the key, to, one key to intentions is to try to figure out how people know what they know and why they believe it. It could just be that they're that they're just lacking a piece of information, like people who don't vaccinate their kids. It's not that they're bad people. It's they don't have all the information. Right. Right. But all right. So how do you, how do you, how do you reel that back in? Like, is this just something you, you have to consciously remind yourself of when you're entering one of these debates? Like this person is just, they're not bad. They don't have bad intentions. They're just not informed. Like, how do you, 
how do people who are so passionate, so, so, you know, Louis CK does a joke about, um, abortion, yeah. right? He, he starts off his last special talking about abortion. He says, basically, I'm not gonna try to do his punchline, but he says, those people think you're killing a baby. If yeah. I thought that I'd be out there, you know, fighting, I'd be out there throwing fists. So right. that if you think the other person's intention is to kill babies, you're going to be angry. So how do you get yourself back to a, a baseline so that you can have a rational conversation? Uh, it, that is if you're the person who is... On either side of it. Yeah, on either side of it. Well, the key then is that, what it, if, you, if you don't mind, I'd like to correct something you said. I think that, sorry about all the noise. Part of the key is that you don't look at it as debates. You look at these things as conversations. And I, that's one thing I've moved away from in my thought very much. So since the election of Donald Trump, um, it's not that you're, you're not trying to win so much. And, and what does it even mean to win at best? I would think that winning would mean that you'd instill doubt in someone's belief system to lower their confidence in their belief. So for me, I think in the, the way that I try to figure out intentions is to, I naturally assume that that people have good intentions, even though I disagree. And I look at not their conclusions, but how they arrived at their conclusions. And if I can figure that out, and that you need targeted questions for, you really need some patience for that. So if you can do that, you're, it's much more likely that the conversation will not devolve into a shouting fast, fast or you know punching or milkshakes or something like that. Got it. What about though? Okay, so that's that's the way you deal with uh, having those kind of feelings towards them. What about when the feelings are directed at you? Like, for example, let's yeah. say you're a conservative. And nowadays, almost anyone who's... Uh, many conservatives, they're called Nazis. Right. Or they're, they're I'm called cons- Yeah. I'm not even right. conservative. Sure. So right. that's a trigger word, not to use that kind of language, but that's a trigger word. Someone calls you a Nazi, that's going to put yeah. you on your heels and yeah. you're going to want to come out fighting. So when somebody sees you as being an evil person. Right. How do you progress the discussion from that point? How do you, how do you diffuse that? Yeah. Okay. So there are a few things there. First, I think we need to define an impossible conversation. An impossible conversation is not someone who's hell bent uh, on punching you or beating you up or not talking to you at all. There's literally no book that you could read or that could possibly be written to how to have a conversation if someone is hell bent on shooting you. Uh, so what I mean is talking across aisles, which in the word is incommensurable in which there's a gulf that seemingly can't be filled like a, the abortion issue that you use is a pretty good one. And so I think part of the, the key in those situations is if your approach with that, uh, I usually, it, depending on the situation and the context, I usually ask them permission to ask them a question. And that will tell you whether or not conversation is possible. Oh, I'm, I'm really, I have all these Chinese doctors living in my house. Don't ask me why. It's a long story. But I, I, I would ask someone something like, oh, I'm, I'm, what do you mean by that? So when I used to teach in the prisons, I, that's a, a, a great Socratic question. The fear was not that they would say, well, you know, fuck you or or that they would say something totally unrelated. The fear is that they wouldn't say anything at all. And asking people what they mean by that 
then they have to play your game, right? Then they're sucked into what you're, you know, you're a Nazi, you're a fascist. Oh, geez, I'm... What, and if you're genuinely surprised, be genuinely surprised. At this point, I'm not surprised at all. So right. I would just ask someone what they mean by that and, and what what is it what what is it that they 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 think and they give me an example. I wouldn't ask the example in the, in the beginning. Maybe I would. It would depend on the context. But if they could tell me what they mean, then I could flesh that out. Yeah. But what you wouldn't do is at no point in that interaction would you invalidate their belief. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I th- I th- I think asking a question is a good idea because when somebody calls you a Nazi or something like that, they want a reaction out of you. They, they want, they're looking for a fight. So you can scale it back a little bit by, by not giving them what they want. Well, the key is to not invoke a defensive posture. That's one of the keys to this whole thing. And anytime you challenge somebody, anytime you push somebody, the moment they feel defensive, they're going to hunker down on what they believe. And then they're going to be convinced that you're a Nazi. So that right. is absolutely positively the wrong way to do it. Right. Okay. Good stuff. Um, in, in chapter three, you write uh, nine ways to start changing minds. Right? You really read the book. I'm impressed. No, I did. Yeah. Well, uh, we don't fuck around here. That's good. That's good. <laughs> um, and and one, one thing that, that, that caught my eye there is um, you're talking about acknowledge extremists and and right. and this one i found to be interesting because i think we kind of live in a culture now especially with donald trump of right. what about ism right. um like if, if you say if someone says something about donald trump donald trump people will say well yeah but what about when hillary clinton blah 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 and vice versa and we see it today even right now with this this epstein stuff right well, exactly. shouldn't shouldn't trump fire costa well right. yeah but what about bill clinton blah 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 right. you know what i mean and it's, it's pointless. Right. So you're talking about um, acknowledge the extremists in your own party. And yeah. I think that can go a long way because um, what people typically do is they either side with the extremists in their party, which is almost always bad, right. or they blame the extreme actions of their party on the other side. And where we saw this last week in the news is with um, uh, what's the, the anti- Antifa and the beating. Andy No. Right. So maybe, maybe can you talk about that and how that kind of relates to this point? Yeah. Andy's a a good friend of mine. I've known Andy. No kidding. Yeah. He sponsored the events. I saw him when he was in the hospital and they really beat him very, very badly. Anyway. Uh, Yeah. I didn't know. I don't know anything about him except this story. So yeah. Give us, give us some insight there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, it was horrible. He covers hoax, hate crimes. Uh, He's a journalist. He's written for a number of periodicals, National Review, uh, City Journal. I think he considers Wall Street Journal, Quillette. I think he considers himself center right. So he's uh, certainly not a Nazi. He's a, a Vietnamese, uh, out openly gay man. His parents are immigrants to this country. Um, so he's certainly not a white supremacist by any. So by intersectionality standards, he's scoring some big points there. Huge points, yeah. Huge, huge points. Huge points. Uh, so, but, but anyway, the, acknowledging the extremists on your side, what people tend to do in these conversations is exactly what you said, the what about is, and they point to the extremists on their other side, but a really simple technique. And I like the word technique because it's, it's, these things really are techniques, really simple technique that you can use is just point out extremists on your side. Hey, you know, I, I get, I totally get, I can't stand. And you can call them lunatics or crazy people. The lunatics on my side the extremists on my side have done horrible things. And then you just fill in those blanks. I'm against racism. I'm against fascism. 
Uh, I'm against Nazis, obviously. But what they did to Andy, no, that doesn't give people license to beat up other people in the street. And that one little thing, like if you're on the left saying that, and then if you're on the right, you would say whatever is appropriate to the conversation. That one little thing is a very, very effortless. It's a totally effortless way to build goodwill in a conversation. Sure. It builds a little bridge there, which you talked about later with building bridges. But um, particular to to Andy Noah, I was shocked when I started reading liberal friends of mine basically saying on social media, which we're talking about later as well, stating that he basically deserved it because he was calling for violence on the other side. Now, I don't know if he was calling for violence on the other side or not, because I don't know anything about him. Not true. But Okay. Yeah. I'll take your word for it. I, but regardless, you don't just go and beat some gang, beat some tiny little journalist who's out there doing his job. Like that's, that's messed up. And then to not, to not call that out as being wrong. Well, how do you advance the conversation from that point? If you can't even see that that kind of violence is wrong. Yeah. And Ro- as Rogan said, a lot of those people had blue check marks. So these are people who are uh, you know, they're quote unquote established in some capacity. These are people who are not anonymous trolls on the internet. And what we see is the glor- not only the glorification of violence. You're saying people who say he deserved it, they, they were yeah. verified people? Yeah. I was and, just talking about my friends, but yeah, wow. Well, yeah. And then Rogan as well. But that idea that we can, and, and that's the Antifa hide under that moniker of being anti fascist. They're not anti fascist, they're thugs. Um, but what you saw in the Andy No case was, and and it's a it, somewhat of a complicated case because the mayor specifically told the people, the police, to stand down, and the police were there, and they basically beat the shit out of the guy, brain hemorrhages, multiple brain hemorrhages, cracked his ear. I mean, he looked like he looked horrible when I when I when I saw him in the hospital. But but the point there is to what you want to do is not call out the extremists on the other side. So you're in a conversation with someone across a divide, a golf, a political and moral golf, call out your own extremists. Yes. That builds that's, goodwill. And it lowers. And so, in, so you and that's something that we, we, I mean, that's something we used to do. That's not a ridiculous new idea. That's something that most people used to do even 15 years ago. Um, I think back to, to nine 11, that was something that, you would call out the extremists in your own party, but now it's people are, are defending that for whatever reason on both sides. Right. That's exactly right. Um, all right. Another one in this chapter you're talking about, and, and, and this one hits, hits home for a guy like me. You say, don't vent on social media. Right. And th- this might be the one of, of our generation, because I think most of these, these horrible conversations, they start on social media. Now for a guy like me, I, we, we have a podcast, we have a following on social media of like 150,000. Nice. We're, we're there, we're posting all the time. That's, that's what we have to do, right? Um, but personally, I never go on other people's pages and argue with them about right. things they post. I, I, I won't do it because I've, I used to do it. I found that it's not productive. It, it never ends anywhere good. Right. Um, but what you you said something interesting in the book. You said when people post on social media, they're not looking to en- engage in a political discourse about their point of view. They're just looking for confirmation to their their own bias. That's exactly correct. And I hadn't thought about it that way, but but 
I hadn't thought about it that way because when I, when I'm posting something, usually I'm, I'm posting comedy things about fatherhood, but sometimes I post politically, I am looking for a discussion, right? But I think you're right. Most people, they, they're just posting just a vent and they want some confirmation bias. Right. Um, what do we do about that? That seems hopeless. What do we do about that? Well, uh, Oh, I think I just lost your hair. Did I just lose your? No, no, we got you. I think you can't I see me. No, I can't see you. Hold on one second. Sorry about that. Sorry, right. we're 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 still rolling. Um, yeah. and I I got you. Uh, oh, there we go. Okay, cool. Good. All what right. do you do? What do you do about that? So, uh, part of that is intrinsic platform, and different platforms will have you know the character limitations or the, the Facebooks and what what you what you can embed. Sorry, now my my thing just went off. I apologize. Sorry. Right. Uh issues so uh i think it's very very difficult for people to not see the easy gotcha to not see the easy you know our generation is addicted to the or not our generation i'm past it but you know so many people are addicted to likes or so many people are addicted to retweets and so part of it i'm trying to navigate this myself i want to be very clear and say that the Research literature is overwhelmingly for face-to-face conversations, and the book is predicated on that, the evolutionary cues that in which we've evolved. But sure. there's very, very, very little research literature. And if there is, it's, it's, I'm not clear how, um, how accurate it is or how valid some of those, those studies are on uh, social media and social media interaction. So I can give you an opinion on that, but it's not like if you ask me about something else in the book, where I could point to some data point, you know, some source of literature. I mean, my, my opinion about this, and you can take it for what it's worth, is um, one of the best things that ever happened to me personally, my own anecdote, is getting off of Facebook. Yeah. I, had, I had a guy who went through all of my Facebook friends and told them I was a rapist and asked if there was any sexual accusations against me and all this crazy stuff. And then, along, well, I get all this stuff all the time, but that was just the last straw. So, you know, I, I think... It is as a, a rule, just don't argue on social media. Yeah. Um, it's a good, <laughs> I mean, that's a good rule, but it's, it doesn't seem like that's realistic. Uh, no, it's probably not. And the crazy thing to me is I know people, in fact, three people this week have told me that they're actually addicted to Twitter and have to, they have programs on their phone that intentionally lock them out of Twitter. And that was just I was incredulous when I heard that. Like, what a dumb thing to be addicted to. But I guess you can't choose what your addictions are. So I don't know. I don't really have a good solution to that because I don't think that there's enough data in the literature to support anything I'd have to say. And I don't I don't make stuff up and I don't pretend to know things I don't know. That's good. We make stuff up here all the time. So you're yeah. you're better. <laughs> good that you admit that though. <laughs> um Yeah, so I'm but it it is it is a big problem. Like I, and I first noticed this right when Trump got elected, I, I made an innocuous post about, you know, if, if you're upset and you're going to protest, keep it peaceful. And this conversation um, devolved to the point where I lost a, a good friend over it because they were so mad over Trump. And I, I've just found like Trump is one of these things, whether you think he's a good president or a terrible president, he's not been very good for the way we talk to each other in this country. And it's one subject that if, if you just bring up his name into a conversation, yeah. the conversation 
almost never goes anywhere because people feel so strongly about it mm. one way or another. Um, now, chapter four, you talk about um, ways to improve your interventions. And the yeah. one thing I saw is let friends be wrong. That's right. I think that's Jefferson's dictum. That's what? I think that's Thomas Jefferson said, uh, ha- has a dictum about that. But it's basically, if you have a, a belief and I have a belief, I mean, I've actually, like yourself, lost friendships over political things, which just seems ridiculous, idiotic to me, you mm-hmm. know? So what? Someone has a different point of view. or different- Yeah, especially when they're people you've known for 20 years, you have good times with, you you yeah. share common experiences, and now all of a sudden uh, the you see something differently than them. So what you don't enjoy each other's company anymore just it makes no sense so i'm sorry go on no but if anything you need to keep those people around you to keep your delusions in check right so you need to have a diverse a diversity of opinion an ideological diversity within your friendship circle right that's real that's real diversity that's the diversity it seems like america doesn't care about right now is diversity of opinion yeah we're obsessed with sexual and racial and other diversities like ability status, but we don't care. Well, the university in particular uh, does not want any ideological diversity whatsoever. They want complete ideological homogeneity, and it has to be ideological homogeneity on the far left. Uh, but the way, what, you know, you, you, the idea that you would stop being friends with someone because of a policy decision. Okay, so let's even take it back, back a step. Once you start othering people and weeding people out of your life, then you will see even the smallest infractions become huge, mm-hmm. right? Because you called everybody out, you've weeded everybody out. So if someone has the smallest diverse, uh, divergence of opinion, they automatically become bad people. It's a yeah. terrible idea. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That that goes nowhere good. And 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 what you're saying about universities. That scares me with with two young boys. That scares me. And you know, I went to college in like ninety two and ninety six to a Catholic school. I didn't. Would you go note Duquesne University in Pittsburgh? Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't notice that kind of stuff back then. How long has this been going on for? Jonathan Haidt puts it at four to five years. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's creepy. It's really creepy. And and those kids are coming out into the real world and they're just, and I know now cause I own a business and I hire these kids right. and they just are so entitled. They're so, they're so entitled. They're not willing to work and it's, it's not good for society in general. There's no emotional resilience. They can't yet. Yeah, I mean, we could, that's a whole nother issue episode we can do. How do we deal with the crisis that the universities are causing? I don't know. How old are your kids? Oh, my kids are young, nine and seven. Yeah, so I don't know if the university keeps up its current trajectory and there's the continued erosion of confidence in our public institutions. I don't know if the universities will be around in their present form. Certainly the elite universities will be because people will always want to go there and send their kids there. But I don't know if the other universities, and good riddance to them, that's what I'm saying. Well, I mean, guys like Jordan Peterson are talking about online universities, and that, that seems to be the logical future. I hope I hope so. I, I would hope that the Grievance Studies Project would have been a, a wake-up call, but instead of saying, well, you know, there are fields in which we need to get our act together to restore trust so people can point to something and say, hey, we know this. It's been tested by experts in the field. It's rigorous. Just the same as you do with, you know, civil engineering if you're driving over a bridge. Uh, but they didn't do that, and I no. think there are a lot of lost opportunities. Instead, you know, I'm a Nazi, I'm a racist, et cetera, anything they could to justify a faulty. Right. And instead of, instead of, uh, 
seeing that maybe they're being a little extreme, they just they just went after you pretty hard, right? Well, yeah, and and not only after me, but it's just kind of um, smugness and a kind of arrogance that people think that they know. I mean, look, how many papers? There is no number of papers that would have been enough, right? It's not seven. It's not fourteen. It's not one hundred and seven, because there ah, which is in the book. Aha, back to the book, which is the idea of. I can't remember what I call in the book, but in philosophy, it's called the feasibility. Oh, disconfirmation. It's disconfirmation, which is one of the mm-hmm. most powerful sections in the book. That in conjunction with scales. You, you mix scales and disconfirmation with a few techniques in chapter seven, and that's it. That's the wrecking ball. That's And you mentioned the word intervention before. When I say intervention, I mean intervening in someone's cognitions to, to um, give them the gift of doubt right? To help them become more humble about what they know. And part of the the way you do that is, um, I mean, there are what, 50 techniques or whatever in the book, but disconfirmation. Ask simply asking them how their belief could be wrong. Right. Yeah. It's unbelievably powerful. Yeah. There are three responses that they could give. They could say, my belief can't be wrong, in which case their belief is not disconfirmable. Yeah. I think you gave, you gave the, um, example of, uh, a guy driving a beer truck in the book, I believe. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, yeah, something about, yeah, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You're telling oh, me. No, that was great. Go, go. Yeah. Uh, you, you asked someone, well, how do you know there's, there's beer in the truck? Well, cause it says right. beer on it, right? It says beer right there. Well, it could be maybe aliens came and stole the vehicle and, exactly. and so on and so forth. But the, the point being that people um, often start from a point where they're unwilling like the Noah's Ark example you brought up, that guy's unwilling to even consider the possibility that he might not be right in his belief. That's correct. So you can't so, really have a conversation with right. someone like ah, that. Ah, okay. So this is the thing. You so his belief so okay, so back to the beer truck. It looks like there's beer in the truck. Well, how could you be wrong about that? Well, I can't be wrong about that. So that's one thing. One is you, they will not admit that their belief could be wrong. The second thing they could say is uh, it could be wrong, but under some wildly implausible conditions. And, you know, aliens hijacked the beer truck. Third thing is they could be wrong. And under this is the best case scenario. Um, they could say, well, my belief could be wrong because they could just have come back from dropping off a load of beer. Right? Or right. Uh, they could be... Uh, that's probably the best example. So that's realistic. So one of the things you do is you just, and I always front load this in all my conversations now, instead of me in this rabbit hole, long conversational morass, I just say, Oh, how could that belief wrong? How confident are you in that belief? That scales. And then they give me a number. And then, uh, what would it take? What evidence could somebody, not me, I'm not saying I have it, the evidence or the evidence exists. And that should be framed like that as well, uh, to to uh, for you to lower your confidence in that belief. So if they say, well, you know, and you don't you don't you know eight as a as you know there's beer in the truck. I just use the beer example. The real examples are moral things: guns, immigration, abortion, death mm-hmm. penalty, legalization of crack cocaine, whatever it is. Those are the real things, but it's difficult for people to understand that or see through their own prejudices, but nobody has any prejudices against beer trucks. Well, right. I should, some people, that's why it's a good example. Radical mo- Muslims maybe, but most people won't have any prejudice against beer trucks. So, but the idea is you need to figure out if somebody is where someone stands. Now let's say they say to you, well, uh, my belief can't be 
be falsified. It's just, it's true. The, the, then there are follow-up. You know how the book gives, like, they say this, you say this, there are follow-up questions. Right. Do you formulate your beliefs in the base of evidence? There are only three things they can say. Yes, no, or I don't know. So it's a template, right? So if they say, yes, I formulate my beliefs in the base of evidence, the next response to that is, well, then you couldn't believe that it's not you. Then it's not possible to believe that that belief is incorrect because to formulate your beliefs in the base of evidence means by definition that there must be some piece of evidence that would come in that would cause you to change your mind. Right. Is that clear? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's just a template. You just give people, they question, and then boom, 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 doubt. Doubt is the gift at the end. That's what you're giving people. Right. Yep. Um, and, and I caught you there. You said you, and then, and then you, you, uh, took that back and that, that brought me to another point in your book that, that I found interesting and helpful because I've already tried it. Uh, you suggest, you know, suggested certain kinds of language and you said using the word we is a very powerful word. Um, totally underrated. Yes. And I, I, there's this one, there's this one guy in my life, guy in my life, a buddy, (laughs) he's a buddy and he hates Donald Trump more than he loves his wife. Like he hates this guy with a fiery passion and it's, and I'm not a Trump guy. I'm, I'm kind of one of these guys like, well, you know, he's like, he's kind of like Obama and Bush. He, he sucks. You know, that's kind of how I feel, but I, there's, I'm a middle of the road on the guy point being anytime we've had a conversation about Donald Trump, it's ended poorly. And today he brought up Russia collusion again, because Mueller's getting ready to testify. Right. And I tried your technique. I said, how do we know that Trump colluded with Russia? And simply by inserting it as we, instead of saying, how do you know that? Right. The whole conversation took a dramatically different turn than it typically does. I know. It's crazy, huh? How one little thing like that. But why is that? Well, imagine populating your conversation with like literally 500 things like that, right? A template. Well, I think it is because the words that we use can invoke a defensive posture, which is the last thing when people get defensive. Uh, That's why usually saying the word you is a bad thing. Uh, n- not always. You sounds like an accusation, maybe you, you know, like, yeah. you- in, unless, unless they're right, then I'll say, Oh, you're right. Unless mm-hmm. like they make a claim. But if the, if I don't agree with the claim, it's, I, I'll question the claim to make sure that, that the you doesn't stick to the person. It's not about people. It's about ideas, right? So you want to make sure that they stick to the ideas, but we is a word that builds a team. Hosses negotiators, that that part of that comes from hostage negotiation. There's a book has a little, and, and cult exiting has some of that too. But y'all, y- the word we is us is another very powerful word. Yeah, it, 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 it kind of automatically puts you on the same team rather than in opposition to one another. Exactly. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up uh, this this idea of golden bridges. Uh, this is something I, I think I struggle with. You know, we're in a we're in a day and age of social media where people like to, you know, the expression "dunk on others." It's right. basically you want to humiliate the opposition. Right. That's what people. That's what people do, and then they they retweet it and right. show all their followers how how stupid this guy is. Right. Um, if you're an "I told you so" kind of guy, that's kind of the equivalent of that in a conversation. Right. I told you so. God, you're slow to come around to that. What's wrong right. with you? Right. Now, here's, here's I my... I believe you didn't get it already. Yeah. Right. But here, here's my question, okay? So let's say this is something in my own personal life. I'll give you an example from my own personal life. Uh, 9-11 came about, and afterwards, I, I started 
asking the question like, um, why did that happen? Why, why did it happen? Like you got to understand why we were attacked in order to prevent the next one. I got a lot of crap for that. Five years later, everybody was starting to ask that same question. Like, why did it happen? Did we do something to lead us into this situation? Then was something like gay marriage. I was pro gay marriage 20 years ago. Like it's a, it's a ridiculous idea to not be gay marriage coming from a, a Catholic background. I took, I took all kinds of shit for being pro gay marriage in the nineties. Right. All those people I took shit from are now pro gay marriage because that's the popular opinion now. So number one, I have a big desire to say, I told you so, right? Like I want that satisfaction. Right. Um, but, but, but if you do that, that just makes people think you're a dick. Yes, for sure. For right. sure. But when you enter the next conversation where it's a similar topic right. and you're arguing with the same people right. and they can't see uh, that you might have a point of view because great question. before you were right on this thing, how do you not remind them of that? Okay, that is a fantastic question. And there's a whole template in the book for that. And there's a, that comes from my last book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. So um, here's what you do. Here's the exact uh, wording and phrasing and uh, sentences that you use. I'm curious, and this is an example where you can use you because you're not, it's not accusatory. Have you ever been wrong about a belief that you firmly held in the past? Like, let's say... So I'm going to use you now. So how old are you? 30? 46. 46. Okay. I don't know where 30 came from. Let's go Did you start with 30? Let's, yeah, let's go with that. Thanks. <laughs> 46. I'm 52. You look great for 46, man. Thanks, man. Jeez, your hair is, is that natural color too? That, that's, that's all the real deal. <laughs> Jeez, wow. That's amazing to me. Wow. That's really, I'm really impressed right now. All right. Anyway, so you're 46. So, so uh, think back 10 years ago when you were, 36 have has it have any of your beliefs changed since then yeah for sure okay cool so oh i forgot to do one thing in this okay so you're you're 46 now so uh what percentage of your beliefs do you think are true now be, before you answer that remember some people say oh you know these are really philosophical questions and listen mm -hmm. dude Everybody loves to talk about themselves. People love to talk about what they believe. They love to talk about their own ideas. Nobody's going to be offended by any of this stuff. I hear some stuff like that. It's just, it's just not these people love to talk about what they think. Right. You're asking about someone about what they think. So what percentage of your beliefs do you think are true? Well, I mean, I would say a hundred percent because they're my beliefs, but I'm open to the idea that in five years, I'll disagree with my current beliefs. Right, right. So if you, instead of going five years up, let's go five years back. So when you were 41, uh, have you had beliefs change since you were 41? Yeah. I would okay. say guns. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. So uh, your beliefs changed when you were 41, but if you had asked yourself what percentage of your beliefs do you think are true, you would have still said a hundred. Right. Right. So if you just, and if, if you're doing this with someone 18, five years may be too much. So you've got to kind of tweak it depending on how old they are, right? Sure. So then you'd say to them, okay, so if, if you go back, you know, 
an additional five years, et cetera, you can see that you've changed your mind probably because you've brought in alignment with evidence or you have new pieces of information, et cetera. So the confidence that that 100% confidence, I'm not sure about that. I'm not really sure you could be 100% sure of the things you believe. So you did that without any attacks, without you were wrong about gay marriage, you were wrong about this. And what you didn't do at any of that point is tell them they were wrong or ask them uh, or tell them what the specific belief they're wrong about is. You can do that without ever mentioning the belief. You just right. ask them the belief they were wrong about. And then you make them make the connection to the belief that you're currently talking about. Right. It, it, the best way to do all of this stuff is if they make the connections and they come to the conclusions themselves. The moment sure. you start inserting it, the defensive posture goes up. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. But on some things, especially things that are considered uh, morality issues, yeah. Don't a lot of people lie to themselves about what their positions were 10 years ago when they find out, when they decide they're now on the wrong side of it? Yeah. And for that, you need another set of tools that I talk about in the book. Um, and those tools are, p- part of those come from the philosopher Dan Dennett the, from Tufts. And it's called belief and belief. And the idea is that you don't just have first order moral beliefs. You believe that you should believe certain things. So it's the belief in belief that prevents an idea from being dislodged. And what you want to do in these conversations is rip out that whole edifice, rip out the belief in belief. And then the belief, the first order belief will just lay there tethering and then it can collapse on its own so that there are techniques and tools available to disconnect the moral baggage or the moral weight that are associated with holding certain beliefs. And again, you can use the same techniques, but all of that stuff um, you can do without, excuse me, without accusing anybody of anything without saying the moment you say you were wrong about that before you're wrong about this. Now people will double down. They want to, the big thing in hostage negotiations, save face. They want to save face. You have to give people an opportunity to save face. And in the book, we write things like, um, Oh, you know, this is a really tough issue. This is a golden bridge. Mm-hmm. An opposite golden bridge is, you idiot, I can't believe you believe that. A golden bridge is, you know, this is a really tough issue. I've been wrong about so many things. So modeling vulnerability. Modeling, All yeah. Social modeling. Yeah, yeah, people, I mean, yeah, as soon as you tell someone, I told you so, or point out somewhere they're wrong, it's just human nature that that's going to put them on, on their heels. It's going to yeah, put them into a defensive, defensive they're posture. They're not going to like you as a person either. Right. Right. No, don't worry. Dog, sounds like some dog rape happening back there. Everywhere. It's all around me. <laughs> we'll be back with more on The Dad Presents after these words. Yo, B. What's happening? You, you notice how chill and sexy I'm looking right now? Uh, no comment on that. Well, you, you notice. Don't pretend you didn't notice. Mm, quite the opposite. <laughs> but what are you getting at? You want to know why I'm looking so chill and please, so sexy right now? Please stop talking and just tell me what, what you're <laughs> It's me undies. I'm feeling good. I'm wearing me undies. I feel good. And when you feel good, you look good. Are we really talking about your underwear right now? I'm talking about my underwear. I don't want to talk about your underwear. Me undies are the best underwear you can get out there. And our listeners, we got a code for you. If you want some me undies, if you want to feel fresh, if you want to look good, go to meundies.com. Use the code word friend. Buy 20 for 20% off. That's a bargain at any price. So you, you said these are the best underwear you can get? Look at me right now. I don't want to. Look at me. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Go to me undies. <laughs> do what he said with the code. Get them. They're great underwear. That's all I'm going to say about My it. My nuts are so tight. I, I, you took it too far. 
Um, being that this is a um, where the dad presents, we yeah. talk a lot about parenting. Shift gears a little bit. I'd love to um, give you some of my my. Uh, are you I, a parent? Yeah, I am. I have two kids. Oh. I adopted daughter and a Teddy. And two, two dogs, as you can see, and a bunch of Chinese doctors. People I've all Chinese people living. <laughs> I don't even know who these people are. What they come, they go. But anyway, yeah. Um. All right. So, uh, we're not there yet to the teen years. Um, Teddy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? Give me one piece of advice. Just, just one for parents, because we we have most people our age have have teenagers. Something to help you talk to your teenage kid, because that's a, something a lot of our friends and our listeners are really struggling with. They they have kids. Kids are great. Kids are easy to get along with, and then they hit this age and it just becomes a problem overnight and they're not sure how to deal with it. I'm happy to answer that, but can I violate the rules of your question and just tell you something that's really on my mind? Sure. So the best thing I ever did for my kids, hands down without any question whatsoever, is I enrolled them in Mandarin immersion program. And uh, it's, you know, I'm 52. When I was in school, you didn't get language until you were in junior high school or high school. And you got you only got Spanish or German or French. You got to pick one of the three. Um, the, one of the greatest things that you can do for your kids, one of them, is to give them the gift of language immersion in schools. The the other one I would argue. Why, why, why are you saying that? When they hit five, is to give them jujitsu. Well, I read both Victor, our kids are in jujitsu from the oh, age of five. Yeah. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. No punch. Why the language thing? I, Don't let them strike each other, right? Or anybody else. That's brain damage there. Um, because you know, I read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, and there's an amazing passage in that book. I later asked my, my mentor about it, who um, died at 97, who was interned in Buchenwald. And there was a really powerful thing in that book that made me think. And basically, he had, he, he had a very successful you know, practice and a lot of money and a, a family, etc. And then he found himself standing naked and alone in a line with at the, the, the fate of Mad Men. And he's said in, in the book, if I remember correctly, that he realized in that moment that he didn't really have his education because that had been stripped from him. That's one of the things you think people can take, can take. You can never take your degree away. Well, you actually can. Um, you can't take away your skill. Like, are you a carpenter? Can you play the piano? Can you speak another language? Do you do jujitsu? Those things are wired into you and you can wire them into young children. Uh, particularly we, we've had both of our kids we adopted our daughter two and a half, but we've had both of our kids in Mandarin emergency since they're three and they speak completely fluent Mandarin now. But I will say t- two things on that. If you're a parent listening to this, you just need to do this. This has been an unfucking believable commitment. I mean, you have to. I listened to those freaking Chinese tapes thousands of times. I got in the car, I put on Chinese music, I listened to, I have no idea what's going on. These Holga tapes, The Monkey King. Every time we'd go on vacation, we'd go on Craigslist and find someone to tutor the kids in Chinese. But if you don't want to take that level of commitment, you just teach them Spanish. Yeah. I mean, Spanish is very, very easy to learn. But that, that really is one of the best things that I've done for my kids is to I'm, give I'm, I'm still not clear why, why are you saying it's one of the most beneficial things? How does it benefit them? Well, they can speak fluent Mandarin now. 
which is remarkable to hear my son. And he's, he lived in China his junior year. He spent the junior year abroad. Oh, wow. And it gives him access to a culture and a tradition and a way of thinking and a written language. It doesn't have to be Chinese, but I, my own opinion is that, the, is that China is a rising economic power. And I think that that, that would be born out. It would be interesting to, to, to view this conversation in a few years to see if that's right. But yeah. he has something he can fall back on. Um, I've noticed it, a tremendous self-confidence in both the kids because they can speak it. But anyway, if someone's listening, I would say that, and you have young kids, I would just urge you to think about that, the jujitsu at five, and then the language immersion programs. Yeah, uh, language immersion. Let, let me just uh, relate this to something else. Um, one problem with... Uh, children is they're not the best listeners. I would think that uh, learning another language would require you to also develop really good listening skills. Have you found that to be the case? Um, it's hard to say because I have an N of two. And when I did my research into this, and I love, I'm a big fan of evidence, I really looked at the evidence and spoke to experts about this, about what's involved. I didn't see anything. It's been a while since I looked at that literature. I didn't see anything about listening. The, the key is to, to give it to them so they don't know they're getting it. In other words, it's just part of their life like anything else is part of their life. It's not like, oh, I'm now I'm going to Spanish class, which is what we had. It has to be some it has to be woven in the fabric of their day. And if you can do that so they're not even conscious that they're speaking Spanish or Chinese or what have you, that's when you produce a kid who who has and, and with Chinese, if you get them young enough, they'll get the tones as well. Yeah, I have a buddy in Minnesota who put his kids into a um, Chinese immersion school where that's all they that's all they speak is Mandarin. So, and he swears by it. But yeah, yeah. so um, back back, back on kids. Um, yeah, back to your question. How, yeah, so how? Give me a piece of advice to help our parents out there talk to their teens in a more effective way. Yeah, the most important thing is you do not want to invoke a defensive posture throughout the book a hundred times. Every time you invoke a defensive posture, you're going to lose. These lunatics are running around punching people in the heads, throwing milkshakes at people. Nobody changes their beliefs because they've been punched in the head, unless they have some kind of brain damage. But like what it, what it will do is it will harden people in their beliefs. So like uh, we also see that in the criminal justice system. This is really fascinating. I can explain this too if you want after I directly answer your question, but it's fascinating, the literature on um, – prisoners and harsh punishments they just don't work all that stuff about scared straight doesn't work so the same principles apply with um kids i want to if if i may i want to tell you what i find my mentor told me this i find this to be a fascinating story there was a study done with chickens i don't know if you could do this study today because of ethical rules but but i don't know if you know the way the chickens the the there's a word pecking order for a reason. Yeah, we got four chickens in our backyard. Okay. We know all okay. about it. Yeah. So I'm going to relate this back to your uh, your question. So basically, there's like a head chicken, chicken number one, and chicken number one pecks chicken two, three, four. In this study, there were seven chickens. Chicken number two pe- picks chicken, doesn't peck one, et cetera. Chicken number seven is pecked by all the chickens and doesn't peck any chickens. Now, here's my question to you. They put electrodes on these chickens, and whenever the chicken came up to pack, they zapped it. Was it easier to turn chicken one into chicken seven or chicken seven into chicken one? Going off instinct, I would say making chicken seven into chicken one. That's what 
what I said when I first learned about this and I was wrong. Oh, that's mm. also another technique. Do you see how I, the bridge that I yeah, built? I was wrong. Sure. Yeah, I was wrong. So I put on myself so that mm. it's a, it's a kind of golden bridge. Okay. So, uh, okay. So chicken one is not used to getting pecked. Whereas chicken seven gets pecked constantly. So even the slightest thing is world shattering to chicken one. Now uh. let's, let's take that for a second. So chicken one, it was effortless to make chicken one, chicken seven, but chicken seven is pecked all the time. So what's a few more electrical jolts? It's nothing. Gotcha. Now let's take that same principle. It's operative in the prison system. These guys have had such shitty lives. Harsh treatment is nothing to them. They're already down in their luck. They have nothing. There's a great show inside the world's toughest prisons. And I think it's on Netflix or Hulu. I don't know. I have all those things, but, uh, and you can see the Norwegian prison system is contrasted, for example, by the Honduran prison system. The rates of recidivism, that is, the people who get out, are much better, with one exception, and that's sex crimes, if they haven't been treated harshly. And my, mm. men my mentor told me this story, and so now I'm going to answer your question directly, of his son, Walter, who wanted a tattoo. And he has never, ever raised his voice or anything in his kid, and uh, Walter. And he told me while he told him this the kid next door to his house left his bike outside and the father ran over it with his car. And then the father started yelling at his kid, you're worthless. Your life is, you know, you're going to, you're a loser. So that kid is probably destined to be incarcerated, right? He's probably, he, you can almost see his life trajectory at that point, but his harsh treatment at that, it, it, the, the effects of harsh treatment have will manifest itself. So the bottom line answer is do not create an adversarial relationship. Do not treat your children harshly. Spanking doesn't work. Punishing doesn't work. I would start simply with trying to understand to the best of your ability, why your kid does what they do. And then immediately begin on the disconfirmation questions, gently disconfirmation questions. Huh? Right. And then at the bottom, and I struggle with this all the time because I just want to impose my own view on this. Um, every time you invoke a defensive posture and give your kid anything other than love and trust, what you will do is you will alienate him from your life and in your relationship. Mm -hmm. And you're far better loving unconditionally, but being forthright in terms of how you ask in terms of how you converse, but always start, I would say, always start with the feasibility questions. That's what I do with my son constantly. Okay. I mean, that, that makes sense to me, especially for the teen years. Um, but I, I see a, a, a couple issues with, with what you're saying. I just want to bring these Go up far. and see what you have to say about please, it. Please. Number, number one, that approach that you're suggesting takes a shit ton more time and patience to execute. So as a, as a parent, like you got to really commit to that. Mm. Um, and I, I can see it being very effective with teens. Teens don't really respond well to criticism or punishment or, or any of that. Like the best way to get through to a teen seems to be like treating them like a peer. Right. Um, but with young like, kids, treating, treating them with respect and being forthright, that's different from treating them as a peer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but with real young kids, um, we have, we have two kids, right? The first one never had to raise my voice to him, never had to punish him. I could, I could rationalize everything with him. I could deconstruct right. discussions. It, it would all work. Did the same things with the second child. None of that, none of it took. So maybe I, my techniques weren't wow. great or whatever, but eventually okay. we started punishing him and 
that he did respond to. So isn't it, you say kids don't respond to that is. No, no. It's not that they don't respond to punishment. It depends on punishment. So did, did raising your voice help the situation? Remember? Raising the voice only helps to get attention. It does, it does help sometimes to snap and get their attention for a moment. Yeah. So remember, if I keep it at that level, there's no productivity from it. Yeah. Not, not only that, there's a diminishing returns. Remember when my uh, Frank told his son Walter to get a tattoo, he slams his fist down, says no, he screamed it, and he had never heard of that, and and it would, he was startled. The second time, it would be less effective. The third, sure. fourth, the fifth. So you have a diminishing returns every time you raise your voice. So if you if you're gonna raise your voice, save it. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. So the other thing is different people, there is no universal, like everybody will respond to one thing. Certain people respond to one thing. Other people respond to the other thing. And I think part of the problem is that there is almost a parent industrial complex in which somebody's pushing some agenda. But the fact is there's so much variability in, in kids and in human beings. I, I don't think that there's necessarily a formula in terms of punishment, but I do think that there are formulas in terms of how to have relationships and how to communicate more efficiently. Yeah. Yeah. And and then the other thing is you always want to be the model for all of that stuff. So throughout this whole process, every time you yell, basically you're teaching them to, I think it was in Freakonomics where he talks about um, if the, the number one factor that in which people read is not if you read to your kids, but it's if your kids saw you read. Mm-hmm. So I go out of my yeah. way for my kids to see me read. Well, not anymore, but because they're, you know, my daughter's like 13, my kids in college now. But, th- but the idea there is you want to model the behavior. So don't tell them don't smoke while you're smoking. Right. Don't smoke yourself. You can do the right. same thing. In oh man, the, the, the thing that drives me the most nuts as a child and now as a parent is parents who use the expression, do as I say, not as I do. Right. You, a, you might as well just shoot yourself right. in the head. That's it does not work. It does not work. And the research literature on that is abundantly clear. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff, I mean, it's not magic. It's not Jedi mind tricks. It's just, and it's not, people think, oh, this is so manipulative. Like, no, it's, do you remember in our conversation where you and I spoke at the same time? And then I said, oh, you go, and then you went? Yes. That's just a technique to make you feel more comfortable and to make the conversation flow. So I didn't, and again, I make mistakes all the time. It's not like I'm perfect at this, but that's like another good example that you can do with your kids. Let's say that you, you it's, like, it's like when you come to a doorway, right? And at the exact same time as somebody else. All you need to do is just, we don't use the word gentleman or chivalry anymore. Those t- terms are outdated, but it doesn't matter if it's a woman or what it is. All you do is step back and you open the door for somebody. It's not mm-hmm. fucking rocket science. Like It's not like a major thing. And if and so so basically then, so, that's what you do. I work out here at 24 Hour Fitness all the time. There are two sets of double doors. And the overwhelming majority of time, if I come to the door at the same time as someone else, I will try to get to the door first they will go in and open the second set of doors for me. But it's a modeling behavior that you can do for your kids. So if you're in a conversation with your kids and you come to a, and you both speak at the same time, let your kid speak. And if, and if your kid says, oh no, you go, all you do is say, oh no, no, you go. Think of the door. So you go to the car, you go to the door at the same time because you're modeling the behavior that you want to listen, right? Mm-hmm. You go to the door at the same time, you both reach for the door then you reach above the door and step back so that they can go through. 
So you're always making sure that they speak first, that they know that you're listening to them, that you're acknowledging them. That's the way to build a rapport with your kids. Absolutely. I'm not saying I'm perfect at this. I'm not saying I'm great at this, but I'm telling you, that's a way that, that you ask for something that fathers can do or parents can do, the dad presents. That's one thing that they can do. And here's my, my wife, eagerly greeted by the dogs. Yeah. Do you have to go? No. no. Okay. I just had a couple more questions. You, you've been sure. generous with your time. Thanks. Um, yeah. I mean, as a dad, I, I, think, I think two of the most important things are, are being honest with your kid. I, we are always honest with our kids, like about everything, Santa Claus, the whole deal, being Good. honest and, and listening. Parents don't, totally. parents often don't listen to their kids. And, and it's very important because they learn to listen by seeing you exhibit that behavior. Now you're talking about people. Can I pause, can I pause you real quick on that? Sure. I think the, it's not just listening because everyone tosses that, that word around. I'm not saying you're tossing it around, but I think it's, it's, listening and and doing little things like letting them know you're listening i hear you Mm -hmm. and then asking them back is this what you mean and then getting that feedback okay go ahead yeah well yeah i mean a lot of people when they say they're listening they're just really just waiting for their turn to say whatever they're going to say um correct and and i I learned that in dating just what what you said like reaffirming what someone said back to them will score you big points on a date Right. That's all I'm saying. Right. Um, now you, you talked about, you just said a minute ago, if, if like when I jumped in the conversation, you're like, you go. Okay. Right. And I, I read that part of the book. You're like, when that happens, let the other person go. Right. And that's, that's common courtesy and not, that's all good and fine. But what do you do with the asshole who interrupts every 30 seconds when you are having a discussion about something you disagree on and he interrupts literally every. 30 seconds like you can't just every time yield the floor can you well it's not a discussion it's him being an asshole right okay. at that point you know that's in chapter one you have to figure out what your goal in the conversation is and once you figure out what your goal in the conversation is then you can have a, a strategy for the conversation why am i in this conversation what do i want to get out of do i want to still doubt do i want to figure out why people like why people hold these views so once you figure out what you want to get out of the conversation, then you can answer that question. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you just want to walk away because he's just an asshole. But that was definitely not a, a discussion. That's just, it's called a message delivery service. He's delivering or she's delivering a message. So y- you would actually ask the question, what do you hope to get out of this discussion? Like you would literally ask that? Well, you would ask it to yourself. Ask it to yourself. And then okay. you, once you figure out what, why you're talking to an asshole, the moment that you do that, you can figure out how to take it, you know, what to do. Yeah. Okay. It, right. it, as a general rule, you want to make sure that the conversations, take the lesson from Socrates, that the conversation should always be focused on questions. The moment the conversation veers off of a question, and it doesn't mean you can't change questions, that's when it gets messy. And But if it's nice. You can keep it clean and um, there's still enough room to breathe. But anyway... Ask yourself that question. Why am I in this conversation? What do I want to get out of it? What's the point? Sure. Of it? sure. Okay. Yeah. And you might not want to be in the conversation with that guy. Um, let me ask you this one. So staying on, on personal relationships. Yeah. All right. We talked about the, the child. What about hypothetically, let's say my marriage. <laughs> okay. Like, right. uh, how do you handle someone who 
approaches uh, discussions or arguments from a very emotional place rather than a, a place of logic. Because I found that saying "stop being so emotional" that, doesn't really work. No, no, that's <laughs> that is definitely that's the beginning of wisdom. Now that you figured that out. Um, so just real quick, I, my dog was supposed to get surgery, right? And, uh, first time I went in there, it was Mm $4,300. The second, he did Teddy, he ripped his ACL. He's roaming around here somewhere. Your dog tore his ACL? Yeah. Wow. I've never heard of that. Okay. Yeah. Evidently it's a common surgery, but who knows? The second time I walked in there, it was $4,600. I just walked in there for, to give him surgery and it was over $5,000. And I talked to the woman and I said, I don't, I mean, I was peeved and I, I hope I wasn't showing it because I know that the moment I showed it, that, that, that's going to, that's going to break down any ability that I have to instill doubt and try to do what I'm going to do. And I said, like, every time I walk in here, the price is more. I was 4,300, 4,000, now it's 5,000. And she said, I'm sorry you feel that way. And I said, I, it has really nothing to do with how I feel. That's just the facts. And, and then she said, well, I'm really sorry you feel that way. So evidently she was trained to continue to say, I'm really sorry you feel that way. Right. And so then I said to her, well, how should I? Well, I should, I should have asked you what, what you think you should have said to her. I said, well, how should I feel? Okay. And what, what did she say? Okay, but you see the pause that I left right there? Uh-huh. So often, often what people will do is that they'll try to, this is a podcast that's different but I wanted dead space there. Often what people will do in those, they'll just want to fill the pause because it just makes everybody uncomfortable when there's a long pause. I was trying to make it a little uncomfortable, but but she didn't know what to say. She was totally taken aback by the whole thing. Right. Now, eventually the supervisor came in and then started giving me the, I'm sorry you feel that way. And again, I said, I'm, it ended in a catastrophe. So these things don't often work. And it ended right before I was going to alter caster. I think from that chapter six in the book, I was literally right about to alter cast. I try not to alter cast people too much. Cause I really do think it's unethical, but there are, there are times when you need basically alter casting is you, you make a role for somebody, you put them in the role and almost invariably they live to the role. It's creepy how, how effective that technique is. Um, so back to your original question. What do you do if somebody makes the decisions on the basis of emotion? Yes. Yeah, you just talk about your own feelings with them and and how the things make you feel. That's like... So you get on their level, you're saying? Yeah, and and then you you relate to them on the basis of your own feelings and say that how their actions affect your feelings. You're never using the word wrong. You're never saying it's bad, but this is how it makes you feel. And if they were to act this way, you may feel this. You may feel another way got it super effective very basic super effective i'll try that yeah and in all of those things remember this isn't just one technique this is all of these things working in concert the more of these you can put in the more effective it will be yeah uh, well the there's a lot i mean the the book there's a there's a lot to to go through there. I don't think a lot of those things come naturally to a lot of people. So I think it's it, don't. these are things that require practice and patience. Um right. but even if if you just pick up just a couple of them like I gave you the example with my buddy of using uh we yeah it's effective. So yeah, I I I do recommend when does the book come out? Uh September 17th. 
Okay. So I'm, I'm recommending to all the dad heads, if you're married, if you got kids, if you have an opinion about everything, check it out. It's going to be good stuff. Appreciate um, it. Yeah. Uh, we're up against it here. So I, I want to thank you for your time. You've been very generous. It's been a, a good conversation. I'm glad there's people like you out there in the world, like fighting the good fight. Like what you, what you did um, with in the university is just mind blowing to me and it needed to be done. I think it opened a lot of people's eyes. It was brave. Um, so thanks for doing that and, and keep fighting that good fight. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. And I can't do what I do without support and your support and your listeners support is incredibly uh, helpful. If nothing else, it's like psychologically helpful because there are some people who are really upset with me uh, and it, it just wears you down after a while. And so the support matters. So I appreciate that. And if anybody's interested, the book is How to Have Impossible Conversations. And you can find me on Twitter at Peter Bogosian, P-E-T-E-R-B-O-G-H-O-S-S-I-A-N. <laughs> All right, Peter. Thank you so much. Appreciate wow. it. You take care. Thanks.